Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit who guides us into all truth. And Lord, we pray that you would have your way with us. We pray that you'd guide us and lead us by your spirit this morning. Lord, we want to hear from you. And uh, so, Lord, only you can take your word and speak to each of us with it in the way that ministers to us at the point of our need. And you do it with beautiful precision. And, Lord, we just ask that you would do that this morning. So guide us and lead us now, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 28. Lord willing, today we'll read 28 and 29. All right? All right, pretty fired up? It's kind of partial. Do I need to tell a joke? I got one that's been burning in my heart, right? You say words from church, if you say words like burning in your heart, you sort of spiritualize a little bit and it's okay, right? You know what the number one export of the nation of Australia is? Boomerangs. You know what the number one import nation of Australia is? Boomerangs. <laughs> Blame it on my daughters. Blame it on my daughters. <laughs> my daughters for a long time have said, you always blame stuff like that on us. Why is that? All right. Chapters 25 through 32 of Ezekiel begins is a, is a prophetic section of basically God, God prophesying judgment on the nations that surround the nation of Judah. You recall the first 24 chapters were judgments coming to Judah, judgments coming to Judah, judgments coming to Judah. The Babylonians are coming, the Babylonians are coming. And that was the first 24 chapters. And then these, these chapters uh, talk about some of the surrounding nations. And specifically, uh, when we pick up chapter 28, um, we're picking up Tyre. You, re, you may recall we talked last week about the city of Tyre. Chapters 26 and 27 we're talking about, um, and I'll refer you back to that last week. Chapter 26, mo- one of the most fascinating prophecies in all of Scripture was a prophecy predicting the downfall of Tyre. And, it hap- and the reason it's fascinating to me is, number one, it happened with extreme precision as the Lord described it, but number two, it happened sort of in two pieces, and there was a large gap of time between those two pieces. And to me, the take-home message is, don't we oftentimes find ourselves in that gap where, uh, of time where you know, God has, uh, doesn't seem to have fully fulfilled that which we want Him to fulfill, right? Like He's going to make us healthy, wealthy, and wise, and we're like still waiting for that, right? So stuff like that, it's not necessarily a promise from God, but you know what I mean. And so as he's uh, talking about the prophecy against Tyre and chapter 27 talked about sort of the why uh, of the downfall of Tyre. So 26 was the what's going to happen. Chapter 27 was a lot of the why is it going to happen. And 28 is a fascinating who of the downfall of Tyre. Right now, we've talked before, uh, actually quite a bit, that you notice that God deals with nations and God deals with individuals. Right? We are all individually accountable to God. We are all individually going to spend eternity in either heaven or hell. Right? We all vote for heaven. So we're here learning the word, receiving Jesus as our Savior all of that, and so we'd like to spend eternity in heaven. That's as individuals. As nations, God, we see throughout the Scripture, God deals with nations, right? So what happens? Does it seem contradictory if I'm in a nation that's going down, but I'm an individual that goes to heaven? We call that a remnant, right? And the Bible speaks of the remnants uh, throughout the Scripture. And so we might be, frankly, it's not inconceivable, that we might be in a nation that goes down in one way or another, or at least loses its prominence in one way or another, or is no longer the world-dominating power in one way or another, right? Interestingly, the United States is not really, you know, Bible scholars have, have 
kind of analyzed for a long time, the United States is not really a player in end times events, right? Now, you can speculate as to why that is. Um, who knows? But all that to say, we may be in a nation that's uh, losing its prominence or whatever, but we can still be an individual that's part of a remnant, okay? So all that to say, last week we talked about sort of the nation, if you will, the, the city of Tyre as a representative of the Phoenician Empire. But today now we talk about a couple of individuals, and uh, they're pretty interesting. So the first one we're going to talk about is the Prince of Tyre, and the second one we're going to talk about is described as the King of Tyre. Now, you have to back up just a minute because you may recall that when we talked about uh, those prophecies against Judah that Ezekiel was pronouncing, oftentimes he would refer to the prince of Judah, when clearly the context said was talking about like Zedekiah. Was Zedekiah a king or prince? King. He was the king of Judah at the time the Babylonians came, right? But he's described as sort of as a prince. And so, um, you know, you hear me say we interpret Scripture as literally as possible, whenever possible, particularly prophetic Scripture. Um, but also, there are some times when the Scripture is a little bit fluid. Is that fair? You okay with that? I didn't water anything down, did I? Get it fluid? Water it down? That was totally an accident. But anyway, so it's just, you know, these things just flow out of my mouth. And that was accidental too. So I should stop. Amen. Okay, so um, anyway, so Prince, King, right? So here's the punchline. The punchline is we're going to read about the Prince of Tyre. And most commentators would say this is the guy that is in charge of the city of Tyre at the time of its downfall. Prince of Tyre, okay? Like the Prince of Judah was Zedekiah. And then we're going to read, uh, starting in verse 11, about the king of Tyre. Now, interestingly, as we read about the king of Tyre, we're going to see that clearly this is not just a man that we're talking about. Clearly, this is Satan that we're talking about. Ezekiel chapter 28, starting from verse 11 to uh, verse 19, we're talking about Satan, okay? And uh, I'll explain why as we go through that, but I'm just kind of laying that groundwork before we get started. Is that fair? Yeah. And so what it means, what, what we see from that is who is, uh, if you understand like basic uh, royalty authority, who's head over who, king or prince? King. king is head over prince. So you see the idea? If the king of Tyre is Satan himself and the prince of Tyre is a little bit sort of like I mean, he's accountable to God for his own individual life, but he's a little bit of a puppet of the king. You see that idea? Okay. Now, all that to say is the prince of Tyre died, right, historically. King of Tyre, if we're talking about Satan, is it possible that he could have other, if you will, princes as his puppet leaders in the world, maybe even today? Yeah, it doesn't take a lot of creativity to come up with that, right? And so that's kind of the... That's kind of the, the cultural, historical, prophetic backdrop. All right? So, chapter 28, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up, I, and you say, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods, in the midst of the seas, yet you are a man and not a God, though you set your heart as the heart of of a God. Now, this is a problem from the get-go, right? If I ever say I'm a God, we've got problems, right? If any leader ever says I'm a God, we've got problems. But, you know, you see that um, really the fundamental sin, I think, of man, if there is a fundamental sin, is pride. So today we're going to talk a lot about pride, right? Well, what's the end point of pride? Like, I think I'm cool. I think I'm extremely cool. Does it have, it, it's just like, it's really like any indulgence of the flesh. Where does it stop? It never stops, right? And so, you know, in a sense, the ultimate expression of pride is, I'm a God, right? Have there been human beings in the past 
that have regarded themselves as gods? Yeah, you know the Roman world, right? Caesar Augustus, when he was born, his name was Octavian, right? But he thought Augustus, you know, which is, you know, Caesar Augustus is more of a, of a godish term, if you will. thought, I think I'd rather be called God. So I'm changed my name, Caesar Augustus, right? We don't grow up hearing about Octavian, right? We hear about Caesar Augustus. That's what he called himself. And so, you know, the Roman emperors were famous for this, of, you know, of, of kind of regarding themselves as gods. And uh, what God is telling this prince of Tyre is, you could say I'm a god. You can say I sit in the seat of gods. You can say, you know, I'm all that. Your heart could be lifted up. But guess what? You are a man and not a god. Sometimes we need to be put in our place. Sometimes we need to be put in our place. And it's um, a little bit scary, frankly, when God puts us in our place. So uh, we don't want to be those people. Verse 3 goes on, Behold, you're wiser than Daniel. That's pretty complimentary, right? I mean, Daniel would have been alive during, during the time of this writing, so everybody knew who Daniel was, right? But even... In, even Throughout history, throughout scriptural history, we know that Daniel was amazing. There's, you're wiser than Daniel. There's no secret that can be hidden from you. With your wisdom and your understanding, you've gained riches for yourself and gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. So this prince of Tyre, this leader of Tyre, was incredibly wise. You know, God's not taken away from that, but he's still a man. He's incredibly wise, but he's still a man. He used this great wisdom to accumulate great wealth but he was still a man, right? Now, is there anything wrong with wisdom? Not at all. Is there anything wrong with riches? Not really. But both can be dangerous. Both can be dangerous. I was talking to my kids this morning, right? Like, you've got this sort of uh, gift in some ways. And that's a good thing, but with it is a risk right? And we all are endowed with certain gifts, certain abilities, certain things, maybe even spiritual things, right? That if we're not careful can be twisted into pride or manipulated to our advantage. Does that make sense? We gotta be super careful with that. I've seen people in the past at times, even like teaching, you know, teaching the Scripture or teaching something, right? They may be incredibly gifted teachers. And with that is the risk of saying, I'm your man. Yeah, right? So, I'm not that guy. I don't ever want to be that guy, right? We don't want to be that person with whatever it is that the Lord has given. And it's not, I just say that as an example because that's what I'm thinking about because I'm teaching right? But we all have these gifts. We all have talents. We all have resources. We all have abilities. This guy, the Prince of Tyre, he was wiser than Daniel. Think about that. He was wiser than Daniel. And with his wisdom, he gained amazing riches for himself and turned that into pride. I always think back to Solomon, wisest man in the world. Wisest man in the world didn't apparently think it was a problem to have a 700 wives and 300 concubines. Specifically, in the context of the Old Testament Scripture that said, hey, hey guys, when you get into the promised land, you're going to have kings. Make sure, I'm keeping the list short for you so your memory, because your memory might be short. Make sure the kings don't accumulate wives, accumulate horses and chariots, or accumulate wealth for themselves. What did Solomon do? One, two, three. Wisest man in the world. So is it possible to misuse even something like wisdom, which we think of as a good thing? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And so this guy, the Prince Tyre, for sure he did all that. Be careful. Be careful because, you know, you may not think of yourself as rich, but if you look around the world, everybody in the room, 
is filthy rich. And so, you know, we may not think of ourselves as super cool, but we're part of the super cool American, I dare you to mess with us, culture. Right? That's who we are. So, is it okay to be American? It's awesome. Thank God we're Americans. Is it okay to be rich in the eyes of the world? Yeah, it's totally fine. But it's not okay to be proud. So he goes on, he says, uh, By your great wisdom, verse 5, By your great wisdom in trade, you have increased your riches, and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. So, so often, riches are like the biggest trap. Oh, we've got to be careful. You know, riches are a funny thing. Riches are, it's so easy for us to sort of slip into this thing like, yeah, I'm entitled to that, right? Yeah, I can throw my money around and do that. And it's just very easy to do that. Just be careful. Just be careful. That's all I can say. Verse 6, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have set your heart as the heart of a God. So we have a because word here. And so often, God tells us what the because is. Because you have set your heart, not because you're rich, but because you have set your heart as the heart of a God. Recall 1 Peter 5, 5-7 says this, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. God resists the proud. Do you want to be in a place where God resists you? Or some, some versions say God opposes you, yeah. right? When you're picking basketball teams as a kid, right? Do you pick the best player to be on the opposite team? No, you want the best player on your team, right? How much more so God? God resists the proud. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves is the command. Humble yourselves is the command. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. See, we have the option. We always have the option to make the decision to humble ourselves. And sooner or later, God declares war on pride. Be very careful. Verse 7, Behold, therefore, I will bring strangers against you, the most terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. And so the most terrible of nations was going to be the Babylonians. They're going to come and they're going to destroy and they're going to defile the beauty of their, of their wisdom. So verse 8, They shall throw you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the midst of the seas. Will you still say before him who slays you, I'm a god? But you shall be a man and not a god in the hand of him who slays you. You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of aliens, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. What's the most definitive proof that I'm not a god? I can die, right? Being God means you're immortal, means you don't die, right? And even in that, you think of these, you know, like ancient Egyptian rituals and their, I haven't studied it at all, I might be butchering it, but, you know, the, you know, the whole mummy, mummy thing, right, is like to preserve some kind of immortality culturally, right? When we're dead, we're dead. When we're dead, we're dead. What's left is what God, you know, what, where we've been with God. But we are not immortal. And, and I love this. He says, you know when that guy's standing in front of you with a sword drawn and he's ready to kill you, O Prince of Tyre, are you going to say, I'm a God in that moment? When he sticks that sword in you, I mean, I don't want to be too graphic, but when he sticks that sword in you, are you going to say, I'm a God? No. no There's always a day of reckoning on our pride. Always. Be careful. Be careful. Verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for who? The king of Tyre. And again, this is a 
This is a distinction. The king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. So this king of Tyre, whoever this is, was pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. He's over the, he's over the prince. He's greater than the prince who thought he was a god. And uh, he was the seal of perfection. He was full of wisdom. He was perfect in beauty. But the key word is was or, or were. You were the seal of perfection. No longer, but you were. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Well, that's weird. Was, was there some mortal man at the time of Tyre who was in the garden of Eden? No. Who was in the garden of Eden? Satan. So you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were what? Created. Created. So, verse 14, he's going to tell us, you were the anointed cherub who covers, right? So this is a cherub, an angel, right? who was in the Garden of Eden. We know the angel who was in the Garden of Eden, who was fallen, is none other than Satan himself. And so we see here a description of Satan. And we see that these, these precious stones, sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald, with gold, they were somehow part of Satan's ornaments. Interestingly, if you look back at Exodus chapter 28, verses 17 through 20, we won't turn there. Those were the same, similar stones that were on the, the ephod of the priest. And so the priest would bear these stones on his ephod. Now, you know, they were stones, right? So there wasn't anything magical in the stones, but they sort of represented the, uh, the ornaments of the priest, right? And, you know, they had significance, and Satan had those similar stones. It's kind of interesting. So, you know, commentators have said, you know, maybe Satan had some sort of priestly duties, um, you know, prior to his fall. But also notice here that Satan was created. Sometimes we can get into this little, um, I think, misunderstanding that we think of good and evil, Right? We think of God and Satan. We think that they're like opposite of God, opposite one another, right? There's God, and then there's like non-God, Satan, right? And sometimes when we do that, we're like, well, I want to be on God's side. I don't want God to oppose me. Yeah, I get that. But we can also sometimes, if we're not careful, elevate Satan like he's, a, he's on the same level with God, just opposite of God. Well, nothing could be further from the truth, Right? He was created, and therefore, he's infinitely, please get this, infinitely inferior to God, right? So, should we be somewhat afraid of Satan? Yeah, I'm going to say yeah. Outside of the context, right? I love my, my, some of you heard me say this before, so bear with me. Pretty much anything you ever hear me say, you've heard me say before, so bear with me. So that's just a kind of a blanket, uh, uh, blanket confession. But 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, uh, Be on the alert, for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he, whom he may devour. Now, if I opened up the door over here and in walks a roaring lion that sort of actually has got an attitude... Should we be afraid of that? For sure. For sure. If we go to the zoo, and, you know, there's a lot of pretty sturdy-looking, stout-looking metal bars on the cage, and the lion's on the other side, and he looks like he's got an attitude, are we afraid of him? No. No. We can spit in his eye. Right? Why? Because of the cage. Right? So if you take the analogy, allow me to cheese the analogy, Jesus is the cage, right? Outside of the protection of God? Yeah, I'm way afraid of Satan, right? Inside the protection of God? I'm good. 
right? Yeah, I don't mess with him. I, I, I probably would, even at the zoo, I probably wouldn't spit in his eye, right? It's, there's no point in doing that, right? <laughs> Just don't tease him, right? Don't tease him. Don't mess with him. Don't say, well, you know, if I'll indulge him just a little bit, I bet he'll leave me alone and not get that bad attitude anymore, right? Just, just recognize him for what he is. He's created. He's not like on par with God in any way, shape, or form. And sometimes that creeps into our, into our thinking a little bit. It creeps into our, into our psychology, our theology a little bit that, wow, Satan, like, dude, watch out for Satan. He's going to, he could kill me. No, no. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, right? First John tells us. Greater is he that is in you, the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world, Satan, right? Nothing to worry about in the context of following the Lord. So he was created. He wasn't equal with God. Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. So he was the anointed cherub, cherub, clearly more than a man. He was established by God and all of that. So verse 15, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. Again, a reminder that it was created. What? Till, till iniquity was found in you. So sad. That's the point that everything changed. Everything changed. That word till. You were blessed, God would say. You were the anointed cherub. You, were, you had all these precious stones. You were the seal of perfection. You were full of wisdom. You were perfect in beauty. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones on the holy mountain of God. You had everything imaginable. Sometimes, honestly, I feel like we're that way a little bit. I mean, we're not like, you know, we don't have the amount of privilege that Satan had before he got kicked out of heaven. But there is something in that we are blessed people. We've got to be very careful. We've got to be very careful that iniquity is not found in us. Now, if we do, if iniquity is found in us, is there grace for that? Yeah, run back to Jesus. Run back to Jesus. But iniquity was found in you is the turning point in Satan's demise. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. So, uh, this is where uh, Satan gets kicked out of heaven. You recall Luke chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, Jesus sent 70 out to minister. And they came back all excited. They said, even the demons, follow, even the demons you know, are subject to us in your name. And Jesus says this, or it says, Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So Jesus was there. He got a front row seat for this. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's a reference to this time. Verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities. By the iniquity of your trading, therefore I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. Now, again, the description here is probably a little bit fluid at this point because this is a little bit of a reference to uh, uh, probably more to the prince that was killed, but... You know, God is outside of space and time, so there is a time where uh, Satan, as we know, is going to be cast into the lake of fire, right? That really happens. Isaiah chapter 14 says this, Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world a wilderness and destroyed its cities? So Isaiah says, you know, when the world sees Satan for who he is, I mean, right now he's subtle, he's crafty, he, see, you know, he prowls around like a roaring lion. But the day's going to come when we all see Satan for who he is. And here's what Isaiah says. Those who see you will gaze at you and say, is this the man who made the earth tremble? Really? Who shook kingdoms? Really? Who made the world a wilderness and destroyed its cities? Really? You see this? 
It's like, again, we have this idea, this, this concept sometimes of elevating like, wow, Satan can destroy cities. Satan can, can you know, ravish kingdoms. He can make the earth tremble. He can do all of this. And when we see him for who he is, we're going to be like, he wasn't really, he was a created angel, infinitely inferior to God. And so we can take comfort in that today. That again, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Verse 20, he moves now to Sidon. Now, Sidon was approximately 15 miles north of Tyre. Uh, it was founded by a guy named, you might want to guess what the guy's name was? Sidon, right, right. And he was the son of Canaan, who was the great-grandson of Noah. So this city is old, right? The city goes back to Noah's great-grandson, uh, Sidon, who founded it. And so by the time of Ezekiel, it was much less prominent uh, than Tyre, but it was kind of a kind of a twin city thing, right? In the scripture, you always hear of Tyre and Sidon, kind of like Minneapolis-St. Paul, right? Like Madison-Milton, right? You hear these, these cities come together. And so Tyre and Sidon always kind of came together like that, but Sidon was always sort of in, in the inferior shadows of Tyre. And particularly by the time of Ezekiel, uh, Tyre was, was a much bigger deal than Sidon. So verse 20, he goes on, he says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, Set your face toward Sidon and prophesy against her. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon. I will be glorified in your midst, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her and am hallowed in her. For I will send pestilence upon her and blood in her streets. The wounded shall be judged in her midst by the sword against her on every side. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. And there shall no longer be a prickling briar, a prickling briar or painful thorn for the house of Israel from among all who are around them, who despise them, then they shall know that I am the Lord. And so, um, again, as we talk about prophecy, there's often a short-term fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment, right? When we see something that looks like it's partially fulfilled, I mean, Sidon is not what it was in those days, right? But do we see the time coming now that everybody who's a painful thorn in the house of Israel is basically done? No. Does Israel have any enemies today? Yes. yes. Do they dwell securely and safely and freely and say, sing around, sit around singing Kumbaya all the time? No. no. Right? They've got enemies. They've got issues. They've got challenges. And so these things, uh, when you read about these things, when you read about Israel in the Scripture, prophetically, Oftentimes, the descriptor you'll see is basically they're safe, they're secure, they're hanging out, right? If you see that, then you know we're talking about the millennium, right? Because they're not safe and secure and hanging out, right? They weren't up until their, basically their, their downfall in 70 AD. They always had enemies, right? You know, during this time of Jesus, the Romans definitely didn't make them feel warm and fuzzy, right? And then from 70 AD, they ceased to exist until 1948. Well, 1948, they're regathered, right? We'll read about that later on in Ezekiel. They're regathered. They've become a nation. But even, st even still, since 1948 until now, do we see them dwelling securely and safely? No threat of any enemies? No, not hardly. And so it's going to be that way until the stuff we'll read about later on. That's a teaser for the stuff we'll read about later on in Ezekiel. But anyway, all that to say, a couple things I just want to point out about Sidon. Number one, it's interesting. God says again, I am against you. Behold, I am against you, O Sidon. Please, we don't want God to say he's against us. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Secondly, I think it's interesting, and I'm just going to point that out, this out for just the times we live in. He says, I will send pestilence upon her. I will send pestilence upon her. Now, we've all been through a pandemic, right? Is everybody aware that there's been a virus that's been floating around for a couple of years? Everybody, everybody good with that? Everybody understand what I'm talking about? There's been a virus floating around for a couple of years, and it's done lots of things to us right? And it's done lots of things, what I call the 
primary effects of COVID, and I make no, I, please, I, I make no light of this, right? There are, we all know someone, probably we all know several people who have uh, died by COVID. We also know a lot of people who have come close to death by COVID. I make no, no light of that whatsoever. But there's also a secondary thing that I think we're kind of living in now, if you will, and that is there's sort of the, the, the way in which it's a little bit changed our thinking. Is that fair? Right? Some people, it's like, wow, you know, the world's a little more vulnerable than it once was. Right? And so there's sort of these secondary things. You know, you lock people down. And, and, and to be fair, I mean, I'm, not, I'm trying not to be critical of policymakers or whatever. But to be fair, you lock people in their, in their closets for a month or two. You think you're going to have any like mental illness issues to deal with in society? Yeah. Yeah. I think we underestimated that. There's lots of things that, that policymakers underestimate. And I'm, please, I'm no, I'm, don't claim to be any smarter than they were. But one of the things, and I say this as a doctor, Prior to 2020, if I ever read the word pestilence, I think of that as an ancient world thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Pestilence? You kidding? We got antibiotics for that. Right? We're, we're advanced. We got vaccines. We got antibiotics. We got tools at our disposal. You know, we know how to wash our hands. We're so much smarter than they were back in the flu epidemic and the, you know, turn of the century. We got this thing licked. Right? I mean, this is what not just doctors, but this is what society thought, right? And now we got, oh, we're vulnerable. I think, and again, you've got to be careful. Got to be careful whenever we say, I think this is what the Lord's doing, because I don't, I'm not going to go there, okay? But I will say this. Could it be that the Lord wants us to know that we're not quite so invincible as we once thought? Is that possible? It's like people say things like, uh, well, you know, I've heard this. I'm sure you've heard this. You know, if you take the vaccine, that's like taking the mark of the beast. Anybody ever heard that? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, is the vaccine the mark of the beast? I don't think so. However, is it conceivable now, get this, is it conceivable that we could have a worldwide emergency whereby everybody might need to get something injected or implanted or microchipped or something so as to protect the good of everyone? Is that conceivable? Yeah. Totally. You know, in the, in, in the tribulation, it's going to be somewhat of a cashless society. Is that conceivable? I remember my pastor in Indianapolis years ago, God bless him, back in the 90s, I remember him saying, you know, they're coming out with new credit cards. They've got chips on them. He said, it's coming. They can take those little chips and they can stick them into like a little whatever and inject them in you. And, next, and here we go. And I remember leaning over to Tracy more than once saying, I love that guy, but he's crazy. <laughs> he's paranoid, right? Well, what do we do now? We insert our chip to buy McDonald's. Give me a break. No commentary on McDonald's. <laughs> Starbucks. We put our chip in for Starbucks, right? We put our chip in for everything, right? Could it be that we're... And I'm not, again, is there anything wrong with swiping your card or punching your chip to buy groceries? Is there anything wrong with that? No. But are we a little bit numb to the idea? Right? Could it be that pestilence could overtake a society? Yeah. Could it be that the mark of the beast is something that is going to happen on planet Earth because the masses are going to be persuaded 
to get something in their body? Now, that's, is, that a, is that a commentary against the vaccine? No. It's not a commentary against the vaccine anymore it's a comment, than it's commentary against your credit cards. It's just the reality of the world we live in. So please be aware of this. Please be scripturally literate. Please be aware of these things could be applicable maybe more than we think. And so again, prior to two years ago, I would have read a word like pestilence and thought, I read about that. I think that was the bubonic plague somewhere like that way, right? You know, and our minds were always like, I think that was like in Africa in the 1800s, right? No, I think it's in Indiana in 2022, right? So just for what that's worth, I know that was more than you bargained for off of that one, one word pestilence, but I had to go there. I at least feel better, right? <laughs> Verse 25, thus says the Lord God, when I have gathered the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered and am hallowed in them in the sight of the Gentiles, then they will dwell in their own land, which I gave to my servant Jacob, and they will dwell safely there, build houses and plant vineyards. Yes, they will dwell securely when I execute judgments on all those all around, all those around them who despise them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God. So again, this is clearly a reference to um, the millennial kingdom. Uh, the time is going to come when the Jewish people are, are gathered. Is that time now? That they've, they're gathered, right? But are they uh, dwelling in their own land, dwelling safely there, building houses, planting vineyards, dwelling securely and uh, safe from all their adversaries? No, they're not there yet. Are they going to be there? Are they going to be there? Yes. Absolutely, they're going to be there. Yes. Absolutely, they're going to be there. And so there's a, there's a bit of a, uh, there's a, bit of a uh, school of thought, if you will, uh, that's often called, referred to as replacement theology, that, you know, all those promises made to Israel, they're not really a literal Israel. They're sort of the church. They're sort of us. Right? They're not promises made to literal, literal Israel. Let me encourage us. If we do that, that's like pulling a thread out of a sweater. Right? You start doing that, that sweater unravels just like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've just undermined everything of biblical prophecy. Yeah. And so, uh, we can't go there. But anyway, so we know that there's a literal Israel. Right? It happened in 1948. To be fair, if I was alive in 1938, and I read a prophecy about a literal Israel, I'd be like, well, that hadn't happened for about 1,900 years, right? Since 70 AD. But now we know it to be true. Guess what? God's Word is always true. Sooner or later, sooner or later, it plays out. So chapter 29, uh, we'll just read briefly. There are four chapters that begin a judgment of Egypt. Uh, 29, 30, 31, and 32. Should we read them all today or just 29? By show of hands. <laughs> I went on a limb and assumed she would say that, so I didn't prepare 30, 31, or 32. So there you go. Um, we were connected. In the 10th year, the 10th month, the 12th day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. And so now, this is interesting. So we begin sort of this thought. We move our brains a little bit from Tyre and Sidon. Now we're moving our brains to Egypt. Now, consider Egypt in the context of Scripture. You talk about a nation that's like big time, Right? Like America today is big time, but we're sort of big time amongst a bunch of other nations that are also big time, but not quite as big time as we are, right? That's kind of the world we live in. In the ancient world, there was Egypt and everybody else in a lot of ways, right? It's changing as we move into the Assyrian Empire and then to the Babylonian Empire and the Greeks and then the... Uh, I'm sorry, the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans, and all of that, right? But 
in the sort of before this, up until this time, it was all about Egypt. For example, Genesis chapter 12, we won't go there. Abraham's hanging out, right? There's a famine in the land. Where does Abraham go for help? Where does Abraham go for food? Egypt. If you believe National Geographic, uh, by the time Abraham went to Egypt, the pyramids had been there for 400 years, right? So you look at the pyramids and you're like, wow, there was something pretty amazing about those people. There was something pretty amazing about that civilization, right? Like, you know, we got iPhones, but we may not be as technologically advanced as they were for their time in history. Is that fair? I mean, they made the pyramids. You can't take anything away from that. And the pyramids were 400 years old by the time Abraham showed up. And so that's in Genesis chapter 12, right? And so we see throughout the Scripture, there's always a temptation. Please catch this now as it applies to us. Throughout the Scripture, there's always the temptation to run to Egypt whenever I need help. Egypt's a picture of the world, right? I need help, I run to the world, right? I'm having a bad day, I need some Prozac and my psychologist, right? I can't afford something, I go to the bank, right? I mean, are anything, any of those things wrong? Well, it depends on what the psychologist is telling you, right? But in and of themselves, those things aren't necessarily wrong, but they're, they're sort of a picture of Egypt. Egypt is a type, if you will, in the Old Testament, in the typology people talk about. Egypt is a type of the world, the world system. We see it carried through, um, you know, as we see Babel. Babel is carried through as a type of, of the world system, the world's economic system and all of that. Well, Egypt is like that. And so in the ancient, ancient world, Egypt was the go-to place for help. And interestingly... Even in Ezekiel's day now, we're talking about the people, the, the people of Judah, right? God's people. Where should God's people go for help when they are in trouble? God. Where do God's people too often go for help when they're in trouble? Egypt, right? So whatever your modern day coral areas of Egypt, just kind of keep that in mind right? So God's people, interestingly, when they were surrounded by the Babylonians, remember the Babylonians came and sieged Jerusalem, surrounded Jerusalem for a year and a half. During that year and a half period, and you can, you can plot out the dates here when he says in the 10th year, in the, in the 10th year, the 10th month, the 12th day of the month, the word, word of the Lord came to me and said, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all of Egypt. And so this is during that siege of Jerusalem, but before its final demise in 586 B.C. So that time between 588 and 586 B.C., this prophecy is given, and it's a given to, uh, against Pharaoh and all of Egypt. So the nation of Egypt and Pharaoh specifically. And so during that time, during the time of the siege, the, the Jewish people somehow were trying to make an alliance with Egypt to help them fight against the Babylonians. Right? We read about this in Jeremiah, so I won't belabor it now. But, but during the time of that siege, the Jewish people are in trouble. They need help. They're desperate. They're surrounded by Babylonians, right? By the way, Jeremiah has been saying, repent, 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 repent. I mean, we read it. How long did it seem like we were reading that, word, that from Jeremiah? Repent, 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 repent. What do they do? Run to Egypt, run to Egypt, run to Egypt. Even after the fall of Jerusalem, right? Nebuchadnezzar sets up sort of, a, uh, sort of a vassal state there. What do they do then? And the people come to Jeremiah and they say, you know what? We were wrong. We got so smashed by, by the Babylonians. Now we'll do whatever you say. And, go, and Jeremiah says, all right, repent. What do they say even then? No, thanks. We're going to go to Egypt. And they die in Egypt, right? The Egypt of the world that we live in, the, the Egypt that it can kill us if we're not careful. And so, anyway, so that's kind of, a, that's kind of the, the historical thing of chapter 29, but it's also sort of the application as it relates to us. Speak and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, 
O Pharaoh, king of Egypt, O great monster who lies in the midst of his rivers, who has said, my river is my own, I have made it for myself. Notice the parallels between this and the, the Pharaoh of Egypt and the prince of Tyre. Or the, yeah, the prince of Tyre that we read about in 28. So, you know, it's the same thing. We don't want God to say, I'm against you. Pharaoh is described as a monster. The word translates as crocodile, if you will. And uh, in the way that the prince of Tyre, you know, was very wise and very wealthy and used that for his pride, right? Egypt and Pharaoh, this is fascinating, they were all proud of the Nile River, <laughs> right? Like they made it or something, right? But the Nile River was what made Egypt what, it, what Egypt was, made them strong. It, it was a water source. It was uh, a trade route. It was, you know, it was all of that. And so uh, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, was a great monster who lies in the midst of the rivers, the Nile. And they said, my river is my own. I have made it for myself. Did Pharaoh make that Nile River? No. I don't think so. I don't think so. But that's no less ridiculous than the Prince of Tyre thinking he's a god. So pride will make us uh, lack insight. Verse 4, but I will, put my, I will put hooks in your jaws and cause the fish of your rivers to stick to your scales. I'll bring up out of the midst of your rivers and all the fish in your rivers will stick to your scales. I will leave you in the wilderness, you and all the fish of your rivers. You shall fall on the open field. You shall not be picked up or gathered. I have given you as food to the beasts of the field and to the birds of the heavens. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord. Again, that's a recurrent line throughout the book of Ezekiel. They shall know that I am the Lord. Because they have, seen, they have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel, when they took hold of you with the hand, you broke and tore all their shoulders. When they leaned on you, you broke and made all their backs quiver. And so God's going to bring punishment and humility, and then all of the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that he's the Lord. Verse 8, therefore thus says the Lord God, surely I will bring a sword upon you and cut off from you man and beast. And the land of Egypt shall become desolate and waste. Then they shall know that I am the Lord, because he said, the river is mine and I have made it. Indeed, therefore, I am against you and against your rivers, and I will make the land of Egypt utterly waste and desolate. From Migdal to Syene, as far as the border of Ethiopia, neither foot of man shall pass through it, nor foot of beast pass through it. And it shall be uninhabited for 40 years. I will make the land of Egypt desolate in the midst of the countries that are desolate. And among the cities that are laid waste, her cities shall be desolate 40 years. And I will scatter the Egyptian among, Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. And so we see a little bit of a similar pattern as to what happened to Jerusalem, right? And so this was prophesied... Uh, Again, during that time when the, the siege of Jerusalem is going on. And uh, historians say that the Babylonians came in in 568 B.C. And they conquered and scattered the people of Egypt. And then guess what happened after that? Remember what happened to Jerusalem? They, they, those people were scattered by the Babylonians. Who came in and conquered the Babylonians? The Medes and Persians. What did the Medes and Persians do to the, to the remnant there in Babylon? They let them go back to Jerusalem. And so what's going to happen here? The Babylonians are going to conquer the Egyptians. They're going to be basically dispersed. The land's going to be uninhabited for 40 years. And then 40 years later, the Persians are going to come in and uh, release those people back to Egypt. And that's exactly uh, what played out historically. Verse 13, Yet, Thus says the Lord God, at the end of 40 years, I'll gather the Egyptians from the peoples among whom they were scattered. I'll bring back the captives of Egypt and cause them to return to the land of Pathros, to the land of their origin, and there, shall be a low, and there they shall be a lowly kingdom. It shall be the lowliest of kingdoms. It shall never again exalt itself above the nations, for I will diminish them so that they will not rule over the nations anymore. No longer shall it be the confidence of the house of Israel, but, I, but will remind them of their iniquity, when they, return to follow, when they turn to follow them, then they shall know that I am the Lord. So you see this idea? Jew, Egypt was amazing. Egypt was a picture of all the world's resources. Egypt was the place to go. Well, then the Babylonians come in and conquer Egypt. Persia conquers Babylon and allows the Egyptians to come back. But they're never quite the same. Right? Now, in the time of Jesus, is really, you know, we see... Uh, you know, we see a contemporary historical context there. 
the Romans are the big deal, right? When you grew up in school in eighth grade and you learned world geography, right? What was Egypt? Was it an empire? Or was it like a little square on the corner of the map on the north part of Africa? It's a little square on the corner of the map on the north part of Africa, right? Do you ever read about Egypt as like all the world powers and the world leaders are getting together and Egypt is like... No. Egypt is like... Egypt. Right? And that happened at the end of that 40 years after Babylon humbled them. So, does the word of the Lord come true? Yes. Sooner or later, always. And it came to pass in the 27th year, in the first month, verse 17, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, so again, now here, the timing is about three years before the Babylonians were going to invade Egypt. He said, son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, caused his army to labor strenuously against Tyre. Every head was made bald and every shoulder rubbed raw, yet neither he nor his army received wages from Tyre for the labor which they expended on it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He shall take away her wealth, carry off her spoil, and remove her pillage, and that will be the wages for his army. I have given him to the land of Egypt for his labor because they worked for me, says the Lord God. This is fascinating. This is so interesting. So when you work, you get a wage, right? Well, Nebuchadnezzar is doing sort of, if you will, the Lord's work, right? By conquering all these cities that need to be punished, right? Well, one of the places that he conquered, we read about this last week, was Tyre, right? Remember, he surrounded Tyre in a siege for 13 years, right? And as we, as we talked about last week, during those 13 years, they got them surrounded. They're thinking, man, we're going to thump these Tyrenians, right? And lo and behold, during that 13 years, the Tyrenians are taking all their wealth, all their good, all their resources, and they're sort of building it on an island offshore, right? And so by the time the Babylonians come in and break down the walls and take Tyre, there's nothing to take. There's no loot to plunder, right? And so God's like, you know, a worker's worthy of his wages, even destroying kingdoms, <laughs> right? So he's like, tell you what, Nebuchadnezzar, I know you worked hard for 13 years and you didn't get anything out of that deal with Tyre, so here's what I'm giving you. I'm going to give you Egypt. God's ways are not our ways, right? His, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. and I've, He's God. He can do that, right? But literally, he says here, you know what, I know, I'm acknowledging that you surrounded Tyre for 13 years and you didn't get anything out of it, so here's the deal. All the plunder of Egypt is your wages, right? God is God. God is God, and God thinks through everything. God does not leave any details undone. That's, the, that's really the take-home message for us. God does not leave any details undone. In that day... I'll cause the horn of the house of Israel to spring forth, and I will open your mouth to speak in their midst. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So through all this, recall Ezekiel speaking to the captive Jews, and they need to be encouraged, and his encouragement to them is, God always has his way. God always has his way. That's an encouragement for us as well. So what do we learn from the prince of Tyre, the king of Tyre, Pharaoh king of Egypt? God resists the proud, but gives, great, gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you are in control, that you are greater than our adversaries, our adversary, Satan, infinitely greater. You're greater, infinitely greater than any king that may be opposed to you on this earth. You're greater than any civilization. You're greater than any virus. You're greater than Egypt was in all of its glory. And Lord, here you are, desiring to have a relationship with us. Lord, please forgive us for not recognizing 
the magnitude of that. That you, the God of all creation, the God of all history, the God who works out all these details so specifically as to pay back Nebuchadnezzar with the goods of Egypt, that you are the God who desires fellowship with us. Lord, help us to desire that fellowship as well. Help us to desire it with humility, never with pride that would push you away, never with pride that would say, I don't need God, but Lord, we desperately need you. We acknowledge your goodness. We acknowledge your magnitude. We acknowledge your love and your grace and your mercy, and we just want to embrace it, Lord. So help us to walk with you moment by moment, day by day, knowing that you give grace to the humble. Thank you, Lord, for all you do for us. Guide us and lead us this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.